Hello, welcome to Doctor Who 50 years ago. The show that looks back to the episode that aired in 1970 and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, the Ambassadors, Twang of Death, episode one. It's by David Whittaker and um, Malcolm Hulk and um, Trevor Ray, maybe also. It's the writers of Confusion. I am Ben. I am Luke. And I'm Nick. Here we are, and here we go into the news from 1970. On Tuesday, the 17th of March, a strange new theory was being debated or categorically confirmed. The idea that 200 million years ago, America, Africa and Europe were once one continent. Madness. Scientists find remains of shallow water life that suggests that over a large time period, Forces within the Earth have slowly broken up the continents and made them drift apart. How strange. Nick, can you explain why we once considered this insanity? Well, it's very funny that something that is taken totally, totally for granted now as just self-evident truth is still being debated even just 50 years ago living memory for you know we all know people who were alive 50 years ago now i'm gonna put down the reason why this wasn't believed until the 20th century uh down to the same reason for most of human civilization we considered the earth to be the center of the universe because unless you can somehow just you you develop the technological tools to analyze things and test certain conditions it's just more obvious to think you are the centre, or things are static. Again, uh, what was it, in the 20th century, we thought that the universe was a static universe, a la Newton, but actually it is growing a la Hubble. So it's, it's rather lovely to think that now we just thought, oh, Africa and Brazil fit together, so therefore we were all once Pangaea. And I believe this sort of idea that all the contents were one was brought up a serial ago. How omnipotently prescient of him. Yeah, yeah that's been cutting edge science fiction at the time. Mm, and so it's, it's very impressive that this, this was more of a consider of a theory than hard fact. And he is clearly read up about it and is using it for a story to educate, you know, the young. Hey, like Doctor Who was originally intended for. Ah, yes, the power of education. And now it's time to educate you about a city's history. Also this week, plans were being developed to build the city of Milton Keynes for about £700 million in 1970 money to house about 250,000 people by the year 2000. And for context, Milton Keynes in the year 2020 houses 230,000 and that's expected to reach 300,000 by 2025. The city was meant to relieve housing congestion in London, and it's pretty much succeeded its purpose between conception 50 years ago and now. Transport's been filled, houses have been filled, and now in 2020 we're looking to do the same to house even more people, albeit in a more environmentally friendly way. Indeed, I was amused to read in the Times article that we have that one of the six goals for Milton Keynes was to make the city attractive. (laughs) Alas, 1970s brutalist architecture would not be kind to Milton Keynes. Ah, well. If you like grey, 
Milton Keynes is a wonderful place. And if you're a fan of architecture done with a ruler, you know, art is very subjective. I'm sure there's somebody who's mad and thinks it looks nice. Mm. As, as they crawl around in a very grotty bus with no air conditioning and they can't see out the windows. <laughs> I've yeah, definitely not been to Milton Keynes. <laughs> um, so, so you were saying that in 2000, it was meant to have a population of a quarter of a million, but yep. it's only got, it's got less than that now. It's lower population. That's not what people would expect. Hmm. Normally they were under targeting. We talked about this last week with the immigration, how they said 4% and it's more like 8%. Yeah, you, you do raise a very interesting point there that okay they were out by about a decade or so thing is is that what we're seeing nowadays is more and more citification you know people are wanting to move closer and closer into london this was a really good idea in the 70s where you would have you know the rise of the commuter towns this was uh, something you had a lot in the 30s where you had places that were just outside of london that metro were also... land yeah but nowadays people just want to be slap bang in the middle yeah, so this is a funny little like cycle that goes on and you know back and forth. That um, so we say in the thirties we've got people want to be out in the suburbs. Then clearly at some point people urbanise, probably to do with the war and what, and then the immediate aftermath. And then they want to suburbanise again in the the late sixties through to the eighties. But then that process is reversed, and now actually city centres are uh, desirable places to be again because you, you see films from the late 70s through the 80s. City centres are run down, miserable places. But it's nothing like that now. They're the places to be. I would argue that there's also an environmental cycle that goes on here. So yes, you had in the 30s Metroland, which basically expanded out to like Edgware and beyond. They wanted to go a bit further, but then a bit of a war happened and cities were basically destroyed. And in that process, people realised, hang on a minute, could we have the green belt, please? So that happened in the 1950s. And then they decide, OK, we'll build we'll build a city a bit further out, like 50 miles out of London. That's the 70s. That's Milton Keynes and probably other cities. And then there's another environmentalist wave, probably in the 80s. More cities in the 90s, 2000s. And yet here we are now in 2020 with um, more environmentally friendly ways of looking to house people. So, 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 okay, I, I get what you're saying. So, we discover we, we need to expand out. Then we discover Expa there's a, a social cost to expanding out to the suburbs. So, then we mm -hmm. kind of contract a bit. And then, oh, there's not enough room. We expand out again. And then again, we discover there's a social and environmental cost to expanding out. So, we contract back in again. And so, we're in that contraction phase at the moment, aren't we? Yes, yes, we are indeed. And it neatly links up to our next section. Because, also in the article about Milton Keynes, it mentions the Roskill Commission into a third London airport, with Heathrow Airport and Gatwick Airport filling up fast. Uh, this commission and the governments of the day differed over choices of where to put said airport, and eventually Stansted was chosen a mere 10 or so years later. But it's interesting to point out airport expansion in the 70s compared to the, whoa, stop killing the planet methods of the 2020s. Luke can talk about that. <laughs> so as we're recording this, it's been about a week since the Court of Appeals slapped down Heathrow expansion 
on the grounds of climate. Every other claim that was brought against them was thrown out by the Court of Appeal. Heathrow are appealing against this, by the way. And I just wonder, you know, how much was this a concern in the 70s? What was the driving force behind putting it in uh, either Essex or... Uh, I can't remember the other place. Hertfordshire. Wanted, but Hertfordshire, that's the one. Uh, why did they uh, eventually I, I pick Stansted? Um, I, I'm wondering if it's probably to do with sound pollution, was the, because, I mean, people who live around the Heathrow area or airports in general always complain about the noise, obviously. Mm. I'm thinking that's probably what it was more to do with. That was more in their minds, perhaps? Yeah, which is why the Roskill Commission eventually decided, no, let's put it in the Thames estuary where nobody will hear it. And as we know, between 50 years ago and now, the idea of an airport in the Thames estuary is beholden to certain people in power. That was the news. And now we shall get into the Ambassadors of Death, episode one. I talked about in the beginning of an author oddity because it's credited to David Whittaker, he of 60s Who script editing and writing fame, but troubles arose when writing this one. Initially, this story was for season six, so with the second Doctor, Jamie and Zoe. But troubles arose when the finished scripts for the third Doctor, the Brig and Liz, came about. So Terence Dix's then assistant Trevor Ray rewrote episode one. That's where he fits into the mix. And then when Whitaker continued to draft scripts without a clear brief from Derek Sherwin and then Barry Letts, it was decided that Malcolm Hulk would rewrite the rest, which he then did. And therefore, Whitaker, Ray and Hulk are mentioned as writing this serial, but mostly his hulkiness. And then Terence Dix and Michael Ferguson, the director, rewrote it as well. So, too many cooks, but despite saying that, it's, it's an overlong serial, but it's got mystery, it's got space, subterfuge, sabotage, it's basically James Bond with space. I like it. It's also action-packed as well, this first episode, so that draws in the audiences nicely with intrigue and violence. Too many cooks usually spoil the broth, but it just flows so well for something with 10,000 different people each trying to have their go at it. You know, we're not having a minestrone with a pizza shoved in there. You know, this is your flat old normal tomato. Would you like to cut that bit? No. Damn it. <laughs> makes no sense. It's it a does make sense. No, it does make sense because it doesn't feel like there's been loads of people all mucking about in it. It feels like there's just one consistent solid idea that permeates through it nicely. So from out of madness came sanity. Yeah. Good. Right, there we go then. Cut. Well, I don't mean cut. Finish that. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with Luke. It's it's not got the cleanest of structures, so there's a bit of messiness, which that's how you can tell there was a lot of people behind it, but it is, is coherent enough, and it is very enjoyable. And well, I want to just say, is this the most action-heavy first episode of a serial ever up to this point? You know... Do we normally get an action scene where there's soldiers shooting at each other? 
this is normally episode four stuff. I mean, as we say, it's a it's basically a four minute long sequence, so the length of it is unprecedented, certainly. Let's drink this broth. Sure, why not? And what a spacey broth it is. Because there's a recovery capsule which has been sent into space to retrieve the stricken Mars Probe 7, which landed on the surface of Mars with its crew, took photos, then took off manually, and was then not heard from again. Cue the opening titles. Seven months later, up comes said recovery capsule. It was headed, it is headed by Professor Cornish and the British Space Programme. <laughs> aided by foreign scientist Tatalian, assisted by the brigadier because he thinks it's his business to help, and watched by the world, the doctor and Liz. The doctor is in the strangest cottage laboratory you've ever seen, working on the TARDIS console, which is removed from his time ship somehow. But let's not dwell on that. <laughs> Lunar landings vibes. I-, I like that they've put a blue filter over um, Van Leiden. This is very much inspired from people sat down watching um, NASA and, you know, American astronauts going to the moon and just mm. missions around there. To the point that even the Doctor just sits down and watches the television like we all were doing at the time. Recovery 7 and Mars Probe 7 link up manually and the space pilot Van Leiden British, enters Mars Probe 7 in slow motion, and in doing so, he sees something, and a loud buzzing noise destroys contact between the capsules and Earth. The Doctor has apparently heard the sound before, so he rushes off to the Space Centre to assist with Liz, pass or no pass. The noise comes through again, and the Doctor determines it to be a signal from the capsules to Earth. And then a third noise is determined to be the reply from Earth, to the first two messages. We're going to talk about the press again because it's mentioned. One, because Professor Cornish mistakes the Doctor to be a journalist, but two, because the world has been watching the recovery capsule on television. It shows the public that's interested in science, which is a good thing, I guess. But But what on earth is with this television news? Because this is not how television news looked in 1970. It was a man at a desk speaking to the camera, and then for a report, they would go to a reporter in the field who would have his film camera. He would do establishing shots, and then cut to an interview where it was just pointed at somebody's face as they talked, and then it would go to more establishing shots as he talked over it. You didn't have a man lounging in an armchair with one leg over the other, with his beard just talking (laughs) into the camera. And I don't understand why a serial that takes itself, at, at least at this point, this seriously, looks so incongruous. Th- this is honestly the thing that's breaking this serial for me. Why has this man got one leg over the other? So, this is, he's acting more like a chat show host, like a Parkinson or something like that. Is that what we're... Yes. Neither... I. I... I watched bulletins from ITV and BBC. I watched from the late 70s. I watched from the early 70s. This didn't happen. Well, but based on... Okay, I, I hadn't really thought about this, but now this is actually quite interesting. 
maybe this is meant to point to it being uh, much like in was it the demons that comes in the next season uh perhaps this is meant to point to it being um somewhat in the future you know do they mention a bbc3 don't they yep yeah so perhaps this is meant to show oh in the future they're more relaxed i think that's a pretty good explanation and i like how that's how this serial thinks of of sci-fi you know last serial we had continental drift is sci-fi here we have this the casualization of broadcast media (laughs) <laughs> wow, they were on the money there. <laughs> yes, indeed. And that's broadcasting for you. Oof. Oh, I just have one point to make. Go on, then. Uh, I, I like that in 1970, all you had to do to uh, make it look like there was zero gravity was invert the image and slow it down. It, it's just lovely. It, it, I love old special effects like that. Amazing. There's no useful segue there. Never mind. Um, the Doctor and Co. triangulate a second reply to the message from space using radio telescopes from across the world. And we discover that the message comes from an abandoned warehouse in London. The Brigadier instantly raids it, and he and his troops have a fight with brigands. And it gives the people who sent the message time to escape and blow up their equipment in the Brigadier's face too. Action by havoc. There are many points to discuss here, I feel. First, I'd like to talk about the line, there is no recovery capsule in go condition anywhere, even in America, which shows that the space programme worldwide is either lacking budget or resources or intelligence. Take your pick. And then the fight itself is a hotly contested thing. And indeed, the Brigadier might have been shot down in his prime if it weren't for the fact that the brigands aren't intelligent and or were buying time for their superiors. There's no fantastic violence going on here. This is just two teams of men shooting at each other. And having fisticuffs, yeah. Yeah, with real present-day Fists. Weapons. Well, fists and rifles and pistols. There's nothing fantastic here. Except for the brig shooting at the hip as he... Uh, strikes that pose, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> and in fact, it's on the screen right now. Rewinding slightly back in the episode, uh, I, I like that uh, the Doctor, the Brig, and Liz, that there's this map, and they're listing real-life radio telescopes, and they're putting pins on the board and whatnot. That's quite a nice little touch, grounds it in realism. If you know about these things where they're mentioning, you're like, ah, oh, that's nice, that's real. Like and then France is the last one to phone in going, it's your fault! <laughs> yeah. The Doctor, who's been trying to work in the Space Centre, probably to decode the messages, haven't, hasn't been getting his computer time from Dr Tautalian, because he's being uncooperative. Tension is created because a solar flare is 24 hours away from destroying the recovery capsules, which both appear to be empty, but only we know that. The Doctor tries again to get a computer to do some work, but when he meets Tertallian, he draws a gun on him. What I liked here, beyond the fact that the Joker seems to have designed the self-destruct timer on the machine that they have, is this hard cut after the thing explodes, right? There is a very definite divide between the science mission and the military mission. We saw this last serial as well, that there was a very 
big divide between what the military were doing and what the scientists were doing. And I find that kind of interesting. In more 50s stuff, you tend to have a closer knitting of science and military. You know, in that sort of sci-fi, you can have an army scientist. You get that character a lot. Whereas here, they've grown apart a bit more, which I think is quite good, you know, personally, for not wanting to be blowed up. Well, this is a reflection of the fact that there's, there's starting to be an erosion of trust in authority, be it the military or the government, etc. It's beginning to happen by this point, isn't it? Yes. Whilst in the 50s, there was a lot more trust in governments and the military. Interesting. And I suppose we're heading towards a greater trust in scientists, even though they end up mostly the coming relief characters in the 90s. But I suppose we are moving towards liking them and hating the military. And, um, which is funny, <laughs> considering where we are now, but yeah, there's only an intermediate point between now and 50 years ago where the scientist figure, the hapless scientist who's, or no, not the hapless, the scientist who's saying things and is ignored all the time, they're the main character in some sci-fi films, aren't they? Somewhere in between the 50 years ago and now. Some, a lot. Mm, but then I think we've sort of moved on into even a post-scientist world. Potentially, yeah. So you have this point where we are deep in the Cold War, where we, where people are very easy to identify the military types because they're seen on the news every day fighting wars and apparently protecting them from others. Um, we then move on to the post-military conflicts of the 90s where scientists come up into their prime and try desperately to be heard. And now, as you say, we're moving towards the 2020s where we don't trust anyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The line is we're starting to distrust traditional gatekeepers like journalists and experts. Yes. Um. So therefore, who do we trust? The anti-heroes? Ourselves. No, oh, yeah, them. individualism. Cool. Great. Ooh. Um, we'll all individually decide to die together. Good. To, to, to bring things back to a slightly lighter note, um, rather than ending on that note, um, yep. just to make light of the fact that the Doctor says, I need computer time. Now, there's two reasons why that is funny. One, the Doctor previously hated computers, didn't he? Troughton, you know, the, the second Doctor always goes on about not liking... Stupid machines! Yes. So it's funny that now he's on Earth, you wants to use computers. Especially ten minutes earlier in the episode when he was berating the map machine. Yeah. Because it couldn't put up a, it couldn't put up the A to Z of London. But the other funny thing is the idea of it's difficult to get time on a computer fifty years hence. Because there's surely a grand total of one of them that isn't being used. Well surely in labs and stuff you still have the one deep learning server. And you have to ask around, hey, is anyone using the deep learning server or can I use it to play Minecraft and Ultra HD? Well, well I mean, I have had a brief time in cutting edge physics labs. Um, no. Oh, okay. People are, multiple people are able to conduct experiments at the same time. 
But also, it's not so easy for him to just solve. Uh, maybe that's what the sonic screwdriver is a proxy for. Now we just, technology can solve anything. So, ding, solves it instantly. Whilst back then, you actually had to put the, uh, the miles in to solve things. So, we've talked about three different points there. One, the use of technology be between 50 years ago and now. Two, the accessibility of technology to the general public or to scientists 50 years ago and now. And three, how technology is used when writing an episode of Doctor Who between 50 years ago and now. And that culminates in the differences between 1970 and 2020 in many different things. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. Leave positive comments there, it helps. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. We shall be back next week to discuss the helicopters and the hairdryer pistols in episode two of The Ambassadors of Death. Until then, I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs> Was Nick ready? Oh, oh, I have one final question before we start. Yeah, sure. Is the guy who's the newsreader, is he Davros? Yes. Cool, good. I wrote not Davros. I want to make sure. Oh, for God's sake. He's going to be called not <laughs> Davros this episode. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> not again. <laughs> All right, yep. I'm ready. What's next? Not Tsar, son of the <laughs> Firemaker. Oh, wait. <laughs> Deary me. Never mind. Can we call the doctor not Wurzel Gummidge? <laughs> no, not Chief Petty Officer Pertwee, obviously. <laughs> oh dear. Fine, screw it. We're done now. Cool. What are we going to do? Don't you dare call the Brigadier not Brett Vion. <laughs> <laughs> no. Because there's only so far this joke will go. <laughs> oh, God. No, we'll call him. What's he called in the Ozone Solution? Air zone solution. He's not in the air zone solution. Yes, he is. Uh, no, no, not Brig. Um, Michael Wisher, he's the Secretary of State yeah. for the Environment. Yeah, he's not Secretary of State. Sorry, I can't oh. see that laughing. It's fine, they're all the Doctor. Moving on. <clears throat> Hello, welcome to Doctor Who.